0: And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club.
1: Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable. Then it's time to become Mentally Stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts.
0: Five justice-wielding vigilante killers. Justice is often reserved for the law. But sometimes there are people who feel justice should be served by their own hands. Here are five justice wielding vigilante killers. Number five, Gary Sellers and Robert Bell. In August of 2007, 53 year old Timothy Chandler from Helenwood, Tennessee, was arrested by police on possession of child pornography. But despite his arrest and conviction, He didn't serve any jail time. Instead, he was only sentenced to five years of probation. After registering as a sex offender, Chandler was released on bond. But the idea of living next to a sex offender was something that didn't sit well with Gary Sellers and Robert Bell. They didn't like having a pedophile in their town and decided to do something about it. On September 2nd, just three days after Chandler was released, Gary Sellers, who was 39 years old, and 37-year-old Robert Bell decided to run him out of town. While the Chandlers were inside their tiny rented home, the two vigilantes set the house on fire. As the blaze engulfed the house, a neighbor came in and managed to drag Timothy Chandler away from the blaze. However, his wife Melissa was trapped inside. Although Chandler ran back inside to try and save her, he was too late. Melissa died in the home, Sellers and Bell were arrested and charged with first-degree murder and aggravated arson. According to their lawyer, the death of Melissa was not anything that was intended. Both men were found guilty during the trial. Bell pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and aggravated assault and was sentenced to 25 years in jail. Meanwhile, Sellers entered a guilty plea for assisting in second-degree murder and arson. He received two concurrent 12-year sentences. Melissa Chandler's sister, Melissa Lindsay, blames Sellers and Bell for killing her sister and also Timothy Chandler for being a sick person. She also partly blames herself for not convincing her sister to leave Timothy sooner. Apparently, in 1990, Timothy had already served jail time in Ohio for gross sexual imposition, which includes fondling. The charges involved girls ages 1 to 4 years old, he served about 18 months in jail for that crime. Number four, Yayan Harley. It was July of 1985 when then 21 year old David Gott was sentenced for brutally murdering his girlfriend's baby while they were living together in Sarfalee County, South Wales. Jane Pickthall had moved to South Wales from Scotland with her Chinese boyfriend and their two children. When the couple broke up, Pickthall began seeing David Gott. By December of 1984, Gott was living in Pickthall's flat. In February of 85, Pickthall had to visit a friend and left Gott to watch over the children. When she returned later that evening, he assured her the kids were fine, so she went directly to bed. She woke up late the next day at around 10 a.m. Gott had already left for the nursery, taking her older child. She headed to her 17-month-old son's room, Chi-Meng Shek, and to her horror, she found the toddler under a toppled chest of drawers. According to Pickball, she knew her child was dead, but didn't want to believe it and for an hour wrapped him in a jacket and cuddled him. During the autopsy, it was discovered the child had died from a broken arm, torn spleen, lacerated liver, and fractured skull. He also had burns and bruising on his foot, abdomen, and legs. It's believed the child had been repeatedly punched, kicked, and thrown against a hard surface. In short, he was tortured before eventually dying. At first, Gott denied killing the child, putting the blame on Pickthall for the death. He even said the child simply got out of his cot and fell down the stairs. Gott was arrested, though, and sentenced to 30 years in jail for the murder. When he was finally released in 2017, he was already in his 50s and settled just 11 miles from where the crime had happened. He ended up moving into a flat around Elliottstown. The neighborhood was common for those living in their 50s, but also for younger folks, some of whom had drinking and drug problems. Some of the people from the neighborhood knew of God's criminal past, but he always told them he had served his time for killing a soldier but eventually some of his neighbors learned online that Gott was put in jail for brutally killing a child. So on August 2nd of 2018, his neighbors, 23-year-old Yayan Harley and his friend David Osborne, who was 51, found out about Gott's criminal past and decided to punish him. On the night he was killed, Osborne invited Gott over to watch some DVDs. Once he entered his neighbor's flat, Harley jumped on him and began stabbing him. In total, he was stabbed 150 times while still alive and another 26 times after he was dead. His fingertips were also cut off in an effort to obscure his identity. Afterward, Osborne and another friend, Darren Eversham, who was 47, moved God's body back to his flat, then took his car and set it on fire. Harley, together with Osborne and Eversham, were eventually arrested and charged for the crime. Turns out, Harley had only found out about Gotts' past 20 minutes before the crime occurred. Yian Harley was sentenced to life in prison, while Osborne and Eversham were cleared of the murder charges, but jailed for helping assist in eliminating evidence. Osborne was sentenced to two years, while Eversham was jailed for three years and six months. Number 3. Bernard Gotts Dubbed by New Yorkers as the Subway Vigilante, Bernard Gotz's story starts in 1981. Well, at the Canal Street subway station in New York City, three young men climbed in and tried to rob him. He was thrown through a glass plate during the attack, causing permanent injury to his knee and chest. Only one suspect was caught, but despite the arrest, the robber was only charged with criminal mischief. The proclamation angered Gotz to a point he applied for a permit to carry a concealed weapon. Although he was denied, he still obtained a thirty-eight caliber Smith & Wesson bodyguard revolver during a trip to Florida. Fast forward then to December of 1984, Gotts entered a full subway car as it was pulling out from the 14th Street subway station. While well, he sat on the bench, according to him, four black men accosted him. Barry Allen, Daryl Cabby, Troy Canty, and James Ramser we were all teenagers from the Bronx and were already on the train as Gotts entered. What happened next differs depending on who's telling the story. According to the teens, they were simply panhandling and asked Gotts for $5. But according to Gotts, the teens cornered him and demanded money. After refusing to pay, Gotts said each man was shot once but one shot missed while the teens said each man was indeed shot except for Daryl Cabby who was shot twice. When the conductor asked Gotts for the gun and whether he had a permit for it, he fled. He ran through the subway tunnels, momentarily went home, then drove to Vermont and all around New England. A manhunt was underway before he turned himself into police in New Hampshire on December 31st. After he was arrested, he gave a videotaped interview to police and explained how he was mugged in the past, how he got angry over the injustice and wanted to take revenge against the people who wronged him. He even said he wanted to gouge out one of the teen's eyes with his keys out of anger. Even though the interview was played for a jury, Gotts only served eight months in prison. He was cleared of attempted murder and assault charges, but served for illegal gun possession. Plenty of people supported Gotts as New York at the time had a high crime rate. Most praised him for taking a stand against the crime in the city. By the start of the 90s, the crime rate had rapidly declined in New York, and many attributed this to Gotts' Vigilante Act. In 1996, one of the victims, Daryl Cabby, who was left paraplegic and brain-damaged as a result of the shooting, filed a lawsuit against Gotz and collected over $43 million in damages. Gotz later appeared in small films and even pushed for the legalization of marijuana. He even ran for mayor's office in 2013, he was arrested for attempting to sell marijuana to an undercover police officer. Number 2. Jonathan Jack Adema. Jonathan Jack Adema's story is a unique one. Starting his life in Poughkeepsie, New York, he grew up as an Eagle Scout. After seeing the John Wayne movie, The Green Berets, he joined the Green Berets in the Army at 18 years old. By this time, the Vietnam War was ending, and he had seen no combat, but would later tell people he did. Edema was honorably discharged, but was prevented from re-enlisting. Apparently, an army evaluation described him as unmotivated, unprofessional, and immature. By the 80s, he worked in Thailand and Haiti as security detail. While in the U.S., however, his time was pockmarked with arrests. In total, he was arrested 36 times throughout the 80s and 90s, but for some reason, never convicted. In November of 2001, he headed to Afghanistan and was supposed to make a documentary with National Geographic on the humanitarian efforts being done in the country. However, he abandoned this project and decided to turn to bounty hunting and fighting. Ademo would tell journalists to call him Jack or Blackjack. He then began telling them that he was an advisor to the Northern Alliance, an Afghan group trying to remove the Taliban. He even became a regular consultant on talk radio in the U.S. He also claimed he was close to catching Osama bin Laden, leading him to be featured in various books and television shows. In 2004, he went back to Afghanistan, bringing along a former soldier and a freelance videographer. Once there, the three ran a private jail where terrorism suspects were taken, then tortured repeatedly for information. The group dubbed themselves as Task Force Sabre 7, a vigilante bounty hunter group. Similar groups were common after the Americans ousted the Taliban in 2001, and while some legitimately worked for American authorities, Adima's group wasn't one of them. But it didn't matter as Adema managed to con the NATO forces into offering support during raids in various compounds. At one point, he even conned the Americans into arresting an Afghan he said was a Taliban loyalist, even if it wasn't true. When Adema's private prison was finally discovered, they realized how horrific his practice was. The prison had a torture chamber with eight captives inside. All those arrested were bound and hooded while some were hanged by their feet. Idima was trying to gain information that would lead to him getting bounties. He then tried to con his way back by saying his prison had been okayed by the U.S. government. He was eventually arrested by the Afghan government and sentenced to 10 years, but he only served three of those. And he did so in a comfortable apartment-style jail cell complete with satellite television. He was later pardoned by President Hamid Karzai, after his release, he didn't return to the United States for fear of being prosecuted. Instead, he headed to Dubai, then England, before settling in Mexico, where he later died from AIDS in January of 2012. Number 1. Andre Bamberski Known as the kalinka Bambursky case, this story involves a complicated series of vigilante justice that spanned more than 30 years. It started with the death of teenager Kalinka Bamburski. In 1982, Kalinka was a healthy 14-year-old girl attending a French-language boarding school in Germany. She was living at the time with her mother and German stepfather, Dr. Dieter Kronbach, after her parents, Danielle Gonin and Andre Bamburski, divorced. On the evening of July 9, 1982, Dr. Kronbach insisted on in injecting Kalinka with what he said were iron supplements. He said it was for anemia since Kalinka had complained of feeling unwell. Later on, he also gave her a sleeping pill. The next morning, when the doctor called Kalinka for breakfast, he found her unresponsive and called authorities. Danielle, Kalinka's mom, called her ex-husband Andre, informing him that their daughter had died. Andre, of course, was confused about how his healthy daughter would seemingly drop dead out of nowhere. An autopsy was ordered, but in an unusual move, Dr. Kronbach was also present during the process. The examiners, Dr. Holman and Dr. Dolman, discovered Kalinka's vagina showed injury and blood was found in her underwear. There were injection marks on her arms, throat, and legs as well—what's more, a whitish fluid which looked to be semen, was found on her legs. The substance was never tested for some reason. Internally, it showed Kalinka still had undigested food in her stomach, which is unusual since the given time of death was said to be between 3 to 4 a.m., and Kalinka's last meal was around 7 p.m. The food should have been partially digested by then. Even though the findings of the autopsy were suspicious, Dr. Krombach was never questioned. The German authorities never found anything suspicious against Kronbach's actions that night. Three months later, though, Andre finally received a copy of the autopsy report and was horrified when he read it. He believed his daughter had been drugged, raped, and then murdered. Worse, the killer, Dr. Kronbach, was allowed to remain free. Bamburski tried several times to get the German authorities to file a case against Kronbach but they said the case was closed and further declined to reopen it. For years, André campaigned against Kronbach. He eventually got the French court to put him on trial in absentia. In France, Kronbach was convicted of involuntary manslaughter in 1995, although this was later overturned on procedural grounds. André continued to campaign against the doctor in Germany as well. As the years passed, key information about Kronbach surfaced. It's believed he had killed his first wife in the 1970s. Then in 1997, he was arrested and sentenced to two years in prison for drugging and raping a patient, a 16-year-old girl. Other victims also came forward to accuse the doctor, but since he had friends in high places, he was deemed an upstanding citizen. The German law simply set him free. Although he tried so many ways to get Kronbach arrested and tried, André finally got tired of waiting for the law. So on October 17, 2009, he paid several men to abduct Krombach from his hometown and deliver him to the French authorities. Slightly beaten up and with a fractured skull, Krombach was left chained to a fence close to a police station. Germany demanded for Krombach to be returned as well as for André and the kidnappers to be extradited but France refused. Instead, a new trial against Kronbach was scheduled. This time, it revealed that he had been sexually abusing teenagers. And in October of 2011, the doctor was finally sentenced to 15 years in prison for drugging and raping Kalinka, which eventually resulted in her death. Although Kronbach's lawyers filed appeals and tried to stop the trial, those were rejected. As for Andre, he was sentenced to a one-year suspended jail sentence for his role in the kidnapping. In the end, however, he finally got the justice he wanted for his daughter. So there were five justice-wielding vigilante killers. Whether you think it's right or wrong, some people will go to great lengths to dole out vigilante justice. You could say some of the acts were justifiable, but in the end, most of the people on this list had to pay the price for whatever consequences came after their actions. If you like this video, then hit the notification bell and subscribe to our channel. We have new videos coming out every week on Wednesdays and Saturdays that we know you'll want to check out. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you soon.